are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are The Addiction Doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. We are discussing club drugs. Tonight, we're going to discuss LSD, MDMA, ketamine, GHB, and rohypnol. Paula, give us just a brief intro to the club drug scene. I can't remember. Aha, just kidding. See, I gotcha. <laughs> club drugs. Okay, well, the party scene. I mean, this is... The, the rave culture, which, you know, we see in the setting of nightclubs, pure raves, parties, concerts. We see a lot of these drugs being used in combination with sex. They're often used in combination with other substances, so not just used solo, often used with alcohol, marijuana, methamphetamine. So just kind of it just becomes a party in and of itself. The drugs vary in pharmacological properties and And it was hard to determine which drugs we should address in this episode because you could go down a rabbit hole and just do hallucinogens. You know, we were talking about LSD. We could just talk about dissociatives when we start talking about ketamine. And MDMA is kind of a pseudo-stimulant, so we could have gone down a rabbit hole with that. But club drugs classically known as kind of acid, ecstasy, and ketamine, although, of course, people like to add other things in. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. Does that sound good, Darlene? That sounds great. So we'll start with those. And we will address some of the other dissociatives and halots and the psychedelics in another episode. So stay tuned and we will have some guest speakers to help us out with those. Okay, so how we're going to address these is we will go through each of them individually and give kind of brief intros, the epidemiology, the mechanism of action, some of the street names, the kind of the acute intoxication period, some of the long-term effects of them, if any, and withdrawal syndromes if they're as applicable, and then some of the treatments. No, I think that's great. I think that's perfect. And, you know, we were, well, we were just talking um, before we started recording that, you know, you don't always see a lot of these drugs reported, and people don't always present for treatment for these drugs. But when you start looking and start digging into people's history, you often find out that folks have been using these or started using these as adolescents or young adults, um, or they're currently using them, but they just don't think to report it because they're episodic users, or they don't have a lot of negative consequences in their mind to the use of these substances. So maybe delve into your history taking a little bit more to get dig out some of the history of these club drug use. Okay, so shall we start talking about LSD? Absolutely. Take it away, Paula. All righty. Okay, so LSD bonus points to anybody who knows what LSD stands for out there listening in your car, listening on your bicycle. What do you think? I had to look it up. It's lysergic acid diethylamide, and it is a compound that was synthesized for the first time back in 1938 by a chemist in Switzerland called Albert Hoffman. And he was looking for a blood stimulant and he made this compound and accidentally consumed some of it, which I think is kind of of a bizarre story in and of itself, why you would consume some of your own chemical you're working on, and had this fascinating tale of uh, trying starting to feel very strange and feeling anxious and out of sorts and asked his assistant to help him get home because he wasn't feeling very well. And so his assistant helped him get home. And as things are common in Switzerland, he was riding his bicycle home. He was a bicycle commuter, like all good people should be. And he was feeling quite terrible on his bicycle journey home and needed to be kind of escorted home. And he felt like he was being followed and and tortured by a malevolent witch. And his assistant actually had called a doctor to come to the house to examine him. Uh, When the doctor came to see him, however, his experience with this compound that he had synthesized had changed and he was quite comfortable and experiencing the hallucinogenic 
systemic effect of LSD. And in his own words, and we got this off of Wikipedia, I think this is so interesting. This is what he said. He said, little by little, I could I could begin to enjoy the unprecedented colors and plays of shapes that persisted beyond my closed eyes. Kaleidoscopic, fantastic images surged in on me, alternating, variegated, opening, then closing themselves in circles and spirals, exploding in colored fountains, rearranging and hybridizing themselves in constant flux. So there you go. That was Albert Hoffman's description of his hallucinogenic trip of LSD. And because of that sentinel day, it was actually, let's see, it was April 19th, I think, in 1943 when this happened. And he rode his bicycle and had this episode. It is now known, April 19th is now known as Bicycle Day. Did you know that, Darlene? I did not know that. I did not know that. So that's in the psychedelic uh, community that's become Bicycle Day. I didn't know that was a thing. Right, right. So Bicycle Day is increasingly observed in psychedelic communities um, to celebrate the discovery of this little substance. So in terms of epidemiology, the data from NASDA in 2019, about 3.6% of adults over 18 to tw- and 18 to 25 range reported using LSD in the last 12 months. And according to the Monitoring the Future study, we're actually seeing an increase in use of this substance and actually this class of drug, but especially LSD, especially in young adults and adolescents. And, you know, I, I think this is, well, clinically, we see this as true, right? It's, it's a popular drug. It's kind of come full circle. And a lot of adolescents and young people are curious about it. I think it kind of fits this millennial and Gen Z or mindset of exploration, curiosity, openness. And so I'm hearing more and more about it. And I'm finding more and more of these younger adults are using it. So it's kind of, we had a lot of people in the 60s using the substance, and then it kind of died down a bit in the 80s. Uh, Club drugs, of course, made their big play and splash in the 1990s as a whole category, and then died down again a little bit. And now we have the psychedelics and the hallucinogens making a big comeback. So common names, like what your patients will tell you LSD is. I mean, they might call it LSD, but they most often will call it acid. That's what I hear it being called. What yeah, about I you, agree. Acid Darlene? is probably the most common. Yeah. I don't know. The, uh, the other older names, I don't know that I've heard those. I haven't ever heard them either. You know, you listed some of them. I've heard blots or blotter, and I've heard tabs. And that that refers to the, way, the most common way LSD is taken, uh, which is these little absorbent pieces of paper. So they're little like uh, dissolved solvable pieces of paper. They almost look like a paper stamp and the liquid's been added to it. The LSD has been added to it and they put it in their mouth and dissolve, it dissolves right in the mouth. You only need very, very small amounts of this drug to have, to be intoxicated. I guess you can take it as a capsule or a clear liquid, but I, I have a feeling it's too strong to have it in any amount of quantity. So it's commonly just taken through the mouth. So put the paper square right on your, on your tongue and away you go. And the desired effect, of course, is this trip that was was exactly described by Albert Hoffman. People want to have this synesthetic, kaleidoscopic hallucination journey. And typically it takes about 30 to 60 minutes to for onset. And it lasts quite a long time. It lasts about eight to 12 hours. Uh, we had a fascinating lecture a few years ago, a grand round lecture by, actually maybe it wasn't grand rounds, doesn't matter, but by a psychiatrist who was providing psychiatric, acute psychiatric services at Burning Man. And and I'm sure some of you listening in know exactly who I'm talking about. It's this group of healthcare workers who go and staff that um, festival. And th- she was saying that they mostly manage people who are intoxicated with LSD and and other hallucinogens. And because the effect of LSD especially is so long, you have to kind of make sure you've got people covered for as long as they need to be covered, right? Because it's got a long half-life. So uh, why does it have such a powerful hallucinogenic effect? Well, it's a very powerful 5-HT2A agonist. So that, that makes so much sense. Acts directly on those serotonergic receptors. It also has some activity on 5-HT1A and it does have some C CNS stimulant qualities as well, as well as some MAO inhibition. So the CNS stimulant qualities, I think that's what can cause some of the effects that you see like tremor, hypervigilance, madriasis, etc. It comes all along with the intoxication syndrome of, of um, LSD. You know, along with this desired effect of altered perception and hallucinations, there can be the CNS stimulant effects. Like I just said, you could have, you have raised blood pressure, tachycardia, hypertension, 
hypothermia, tremor, like I said, medriasis, dizziness, loss of appetite. And if people can feel quite depersonalized and derealized, so distortion of the ability to recognize what's real, and they can get quite frightened. And like, like our man Albert, he thought there was a, male- a malevolent witch following him. And so people can't distinguish between what's really what's happening and what's the experience of the drug and can't think rationally, of course, in the short term. In the long term, so and there is this, this is a great board question and it's a, it's a real thing, but you can have a hallucinogen persisting perception disorder or HPPD that can arrive from use of LSD. And basically it's a frightening flashback to the to the hallucination event, especially if people have what's called as a bad trip. So you never know what you're going to get. You might see kaleidoscoping, you know, circles and spirals and feel calm and enjoy the synesthetic experience, which is synesthesia, as we all remember from medical school, is feeling colors and sensing colors. But you could also have a really terrible trip where, you know, you have very frightening images and feel like you're in a very frightening experience. So long-term effects can involve this hallucinogen persisting perception disorder, ongoing visual disturbances, disordered thinking, paranoia, and mood swings. So got to be careful with this and warn people that you never know when that might happen. And as far as I understand, it can go on and on. Do you do you understand it the same way, Darlene, the persisting perception disorder caused by hallucinogens? Yeah. Yes. Literature supports this can be an yeah. ongoing thing. Most most people, it's the first, sometimes year, 10 years. But I mean, there are some that some people are reporting Wow. Even after I just, that. I'm just not, I'm just pretty risk averse. I'm like, I don't want to, I wouldn't want to mess with that. <laughs> anyway. Okay. Yeah. Incredibly. Yeah, All right. We so in are. terms of um, a use disorder, like do people develop tolerance, dependence and DSM-5 criteria for a use disorder? Well, no, not really. Hallucinogens tend to evade this um, for people. And we don't really ever see people like addicted to to LSD. It doesn't cause dependence, tolerance, craving, etc. But it often does require, like we just talked about, management of an acute intoxication state, right? So think Burning Man. What do you need to do with someone who is not in touch with reality, maybe very frightened, maybe experiencing all these images or situation that are very, very threatening to them, and also can be experiencing physical symptoms of tremor, hypertension, tachycardia, etc. So your approach should be placing them in a supportive, calm environment. Maybe they might need to be cooled a little bit. You want to keep reassuring them with reality testing, telling them that this is just the effects of the substance and it will be over in a few hours. Benzodiazepines may be helpful, but you want to avoid giving people antipsychotics because there's a possibility of a paradoxical reaction. If people are really acting psychotic or behaviorally not able to calm down, the antipsychotic of choice is haloperidol. And I can't remember why. It must have something to do with the potency of on the dopamine receptors with that particular typical antipsychotic. But just remember, supportive, calm environment, possibly benzos, and if possible, avoid antipsychotics because you could make things worse. And this is just a pearl from me to all of you. After working for many, for several years in an inpatient setting, um, doing detox in a hospital setting, uh, whenever you see someone that's got frequent or heavy LSD use, look for other substance use. Like what's going on? What's What are they escaping from? Or what are they escaping to? And what else are they doing? Because you very rarely see something like LSD being used in isolation. Typically, it's a gateway drug and you hear a lot of teenagers start with something like this and then they move on or they're already using marijuana as well and alcohol and um, ecstasy and then they graduate on to more um, I'd say quotation marks heavy drugs so do the investigating when you hear someone is investigating with LSD so there you go that's my story about LSD and Alfred Hoffman who uh, excuse me not Alfred Albert Hoffman and now we can all remember April 19th as bicycle day and would you say Paula wouldn't that really be all 
of the club drugs you should look at if somebody's using them quite frequently. It's usually there's co-occurring use. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, some people, I think, just party. I think you have like you do with maybe alcohol, marijuana, cocaine, You uh, maybe even meth, but I'm not sure about that. But you have, and even opioids, you just have like binge use, binge users that really just do use occasionally or use parties, use for raves. But um, I think you need, if you have someone who has heavy or persistent use, you want to really delve into that. And of course, an adolescent with any drug use is an automatic red flag, right? Because of the vulnerability of an adolescent brain and the science that, that we know that anyone who starts using substances at a young age is more vulnerable to developing a substance use disorder in their adulthood. Great. Okay. Ketamine. Ketamine has a, definitely a lot more interest recently. We may do another episode on this as well, so stay tuned. But we're going to talk about more the abuse of ketamine in this episode, just to give you a quick introduction. So ketamine is a derivative of phenylcycladine, and ketamine is an NMDA receptor antagonist. So when you have that blockade, it's associated with increased dopamine release in the prefrontal cortex and midbrain. Thinking about that effect, so that kind of will bring us into how it works. The, the Currently, ketamine does have some FDA-approved uses. And we'll just touch on those. So we have Ketalar, which is a surgical anesthetic. And then we have Spravato, which is prescribed for the treatment-resistant depression. And this is used under strict medical supervision. And then we have Ketaset, which is a surgical anesthesia used in veterinary medicine. And that's probably one of the bigger sources of diversion. Is the Ketaset? It's probably the Ketaset. Which is a good board question, right? You hear about someone diverting medicine from a veterinary lab and what is the medicine? And the answer is ketamine. Exactly. So what effect are they usually looking for? They're looking for altered perception, memory loss, and altered cognition. Some of the different things that it's known as, so some of those names on the street, you have Special K, Vitamin K. I mean, there's a lot of them. Kit Kat, I don't know that I've heard that one as much. Super Acid, Super K, Cat's Valium is one I've heard. What other names have you heard, Paula? I would actually say, I mean, I just, I have just really heard people just talk about ketamine, you know, obviously I'm talking to them in a medical setting. So, and special K and vitamin K, those would be like the two street names I'm most familiar with. Typical methods that they, it's used as, it's usually inhaled when we are administering it. So this is in the FDA approved uses. When it's being misused, it's seen injected, snorted, and smoked. It can be a powder added to tobacco or marijuana cigarettes. So again, this goes back to these club drugs are often mixed. And so this is where you can get into, you know, more side effects and more issues can also be swallowed. Some of the, you know, formulations, they will mix it. So you can get these and things that they'll call them either like a bullet or a bumper is so they'll call an inhalation a bump. Ketamine, it's often, so they'll mix it with trail mixes. Of, they'll call it met with, met with amphetamine, then cocaine. They'll mix it with um, Viagra or heroin. And so both popular and research accounts indicate that the recreational use has increased. And so when we, this is again into our club drug scene. Yeah. And I, I really see that. So. I think ketamine is a, is a drug of great interest. It's, it's of great interest and scrutiny in the psychiatric field because of its um, indication for treatment resistant depression. And and it's also a drug of interest in the substance use world, I think, because it's just made a kind of a comeback, don't you think? I hear I hear about it yeah. pretty often, especially in a certain population, a little bit more of an affluent club going population, young, I don't want to profile people, but kind of young white male, maybe that's the population that I'm seeing here in Utah, but uh, hear quite a lot of uh, ketamine use in those folks. No, and that, that's great. It brings us into the epidemiology. So from the monitoring, the future study, it's about 3%, which is, that is higher than some of our other club drugs. And that was past year use among high school seniors. And then Dawn study showed it's 
age use from 12 to 25 year olds, 74%. So that's that, again, that young, it's much that younger age are the ones that are showing up in our ERs with adverse events and using ketamine, 74%. That's pretty high. Yeah, that is high. Yeah. So short term effects. So what what are they seeing? So you're going to see problems with attention, learning and memory. They get that dreamlike state. That's that anesthetic property. Hallucinations, sedation, obviously, this is a CNS depressant, confusion, loss of memory, raised blood pressure, unconsciousness, dangerously slowed breathing. And I need to note, this can also be used as a date rape drug. We'll get into two others in the club drug scene, but ketamine has also been used with that because of you get the memory loss and you get the unconsciousness. Yeah. Some long-term health Can effect. I just say something? So think about ketamine use. It's, it's purely dose dependent, kind of like DXM, yes. um, dextromethorphan. So certain doses, you're going to have a certain effect. And then with increasing doses, you have different effects. So even alcohol as well, right? The same thing. So with low Absolutely. dose, just the right dose, think of Goldilocks, you know, Goldilocks and ketamine. Ketamine's three bears, like just the right amount, you're going to have the desired effect, which is dissociation, relaxation, floating. It and then if you have too much, you're just sedated and confused. And if you have too much, you're, you're, it's, it is an anesthetic. So you're completely anesthetized, which means you need help with breathing and and basically can die. You can go into a, a yes. coma and die from ketamine um, overdose and intoxication. So it's quite a dangerous drug for intoxication. And that well, it's incredibly it's incredibly dangerous when you're talking about these trail mixes exactly. where they're mixing it with other CNS depressants. So long term effects. There is some long term health effects with frequent use. So they talk about about ulcers and pain in the bladder. So it's very interesting about that. So this talks about, this has got to be from excretion, right? Yes. And I remember when we were studying for the boards, K cramp. Do you remember that? We studied about K cramps, ketamine cramps in the bladder. And it's it's a key or should be on a differential for people who present with interstitial cystitis type symptoms. Yes. So that's a really important thing to remember. Don't forget that. Ulcers and pain in the bladder, kidney problems, stomach pain right there, Paula, and then depression and poor memory. That's why it's a it's a double-edged sword. <laughs> like it's a very key thing. Yeah, that's why I'm interested to do another episode on this with a guest um, expert on ketamine for the use of depression because it's again it has to be used under medical supervision with people who really know what they're doing because too much and too long ketamine can actually have the opposite effect of what people are going for, right? And I really worry about these pop-up ketamine clinics that are everywhere, that they're, I just worry that people are, are, are being put in harm's way. But we'll talk about that at a future date. Yeah, absolutely. And so treatment is generally, again, you're treating, like you said, Paula, it's dose dependent. And it's for many, it's respiratory support, naloxone for overdoses with when you have heroin concurrent. So most of the time, the overdoses are when people have concurrent drug use. And so you're treating that. And so it's supportive care. What other what other treatments? No, I think that's it. It's supportive care. I mean, obviously, just basic AB, your ABCDs of trauma care, really, if someone's really intoxicated. And, uh, and then if someone is, is abusing it long term, you want to look into the, the why and the and the route. And if they're using it through a risky route, like injecting or bumping even with other yeah. substances, you want to evaluate that, yeah. sure, and treat them. your risks of HIV, mm-hmm. hepatitis. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay, so that's ketamine. All right. Now we have MDMA. Okay, party drug. Party drug number three. <laughs> this is like the ultimate party drug, really, right? If you think about if you think about parties, okay, so I'm gonna tell you my party story. Are you ready? So yes. a few years ago, actually it was quite a few years ago now, but we live in Salt Lake City and my husband really likes music. He's he's kind of into music. He always has been, and he likes to go to concerts. And it would happen to be the Sundance Film Festival. And he said to me, Hey, there's this amazing DJ who's playing downtown and he's in town for the festival. So let's go. It was 
is Paul Oakenfold, for those of you who like de- like house music. And so I was like, okay, fine. This was before I turned into a pumpkin at eight o'clock at night. So I was like, I'll go. We head off to this concert and we go in. And I mean, that being said, a bit of self-disclosure, like we're both comfortably in our 40s. So we go into this concert and I it only took me like one minute to look around and recognize that we were in a full-blown rave and we were literally twice the age of everybody there and it was like i mean it was such a good experience for me because of where i work and also because i'm such a prude and i don't i don't you know do drugs so there it was like psychedelic lighting people asking who bought their (laughs) mom exactly (laughs) and people so people were you had the binkies they had the bandanas around their face everyone they were handing out uh pacifiers there was just it was it was just pill central it was ecstasy and huffing central it was amazing and i couldn't stay like i just felt so sad people were enjoying themselves clearly but i'm like this is just this is terrible i couldn't stay um and our kids thought it was hilarious that we had gone to a rave so we've never quite lived that down that's about the most exciting thing we've done in terms of uh party drugs is is been witness to a full-blown rave okay so let's talk about mdma other no names are molly and ecstasy we'll kind of talk about the difference between those uh chemical name again okay anyone this would be like triple points if you could give the chemical name of mdma anybody anybody you do (laughs) you don't count okay is three four methyl methylene dioxy methamphetamine that's what it is did you know it or did you have to look it up i think well i knew it when i took the board okay well you get half points good job. Okay, so this is a synthetic drug. It's a very psychoactive drug that has similarities to both this um, amphetamine, which makes sense since it has a name methamphetamine in it, and the hallucinogen, hallucinogenic drug mescaline. However, it's a very serotonergic drug as well. And this is really known as the empathy drug. So if you want to remember anything, remember MDMA as the empathy drug. We'll talk about why in a minute. Um, epidemiologically, um, do we call it the, the hug, hug drug? drug. Oh, I love that. I've never heard that, but it's very true. Epidemiologically, according to NIDA, 7% of people in the US have had lifetime use. That's quite a few people. And it's much more than that in the world at large. So we're only concentrating on US epidemiology, but at some point we need to talk about other countries. I think that would be fun. Just on an aside, is there a difference between Molly and ecstasy? Because those are kind of used interchangeably. But I remember in the 2000s where it used to always just be ecstasy. We used to talk about ecstasy and suddenly Molly came on the scene. Do you remember that? I mean, you're younger than me, so you might. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember, oh my gosh, now I'm blanking on her name. Miley Cyrus kind of made Molly famous a little bit with her song, but they might be the same thing or or it might just be that ecstasy really is MDMA. That's kind of the street name for MDMA. And Molly might also be MDMA, but it could also be a different, slightly different chemical version like MDPV, which we talked about in our bath salts episode. So basically just a cathinone derivative of MDMA, or it could just be the form in which um, ecstasy and Molly are accessed. And this could be geographic too. In your city, ecstasy might be pills like pressed pills, and Molly might come in the form form of gel caps, or they might just both be the same exact thing. And I just thought that was interesting and something you might want to know, um, especially as you're taking addiction history, substance histories. Okay, so what is the history of MDMA? Well, it was developed all the way back in 1912 by good old Merck. And it was actually used to enhance psychotherapy in the 1970s and became a popular street drug in the 1980s. So, you know, in the 1970s, it was used to facilitate. So I can jump in yeah, there. Yeah, do, please. When, yeah, when they started using it in the 1970s, it was, yeah, it was for couples therapy, exactly what you said, the empathy drug, to try to develop more, more empathy, but it had some not so great side effects, which is why it became unscheduled. Yeah. And it's really interesting because now, of course, it's being studied as a therapeutic agent um, for psychotherapy Again. for, um, is it PTSD? I think I'm trying to think. I, I, I know you all listening will be correcting me in your car. But um, of course, it's being investigated again in the psychotherapeutic world as an agent of interest um, in terms of facilitating psychotherapeutic recall and things like that. But anyway, it became a popular street drug in the 80s. And now it's 
that's really commonly associated with parties and raves, electronic dance music, like I found myself in about 10 years ago, and um, and also concerts. So how does it work? Well, remember, we told you that it was kind of a mixture of it was a marriage between amphetamine and hallucinogens with a little bit of serotonin kind of overlooking. So it is the hug drug. So it's all of these chemical effects hugging together. It has multiple effects on the CNS and basically an indirect serotonin agonist by inhibiting tryptophan hydroxylase. So when you inhibit tryptophan hydroxylase, if you remember back to biochemistry, tryptophan is the, one of the main precursors to serotonin. So when you inhibit tryptophan hydroxylase, you decrease serotonin production. And it also directly induces the release of serotonin and blocks serotonin reuptake. So the, some of those effects account for the acute intoxication effect of MDMA and also account for the post-intoxication effect of severe, profound depression, anorexia, and agitation. So MDMA has been shown to be very noradrenergic, dopaminergic, dopaminergic, and cholinergic as well. And that's why we see some of the um, pretty catastrophic um, CNS effects and electrolyte effects, etc. It's also can be toxic, neurotoxic. Do you remember studying that for the boards. I remember that was um, an interesting thing too, that it can be really neurotoxic and we they think it can cause some long-term damage to the brain in young users who use it repeatedly. Yes. Yeah. And really deplete their serotonin level. Right. Correct? And kind of think of it like, so in its chemical name, it has methamphetamine. Remember when we talked about methamphetamine in our podcast, how methamphetamine is very neurotoxic, probably because it causes this dumping of do- of dopamine. It's it's not like cocaine where you have dopamine reuptake inhibition. It's just immediate flooding of the receptor into the synapse. So MDMA does the same kind of thing with serotonin. Maybe that has something to do with neurotoxicity to the synapse. I'm kind of hypothesizing here. So like Darlene was saying when she was talking about ketamine, it's increasingly used in combination with other drugs. So MDMA is not used solo. It's typically used with alcohol, marijuana, ketamine, um, and, and other substances. And more and more you're seeing folks use something like fluoxetine or sertraline as a prophylaxis to prevent this profound depression that comes in the next couple of days. So that was interesting. I didn't know about that, but it kind of makes sense. Have you ever heard about that? Frequent users, I think we're seeing this chronic, right? Yeah, absolutely. When they're so depleted. Yes. Oh yeah, sure. We'll talk about that in a bit. So common names, I'd say, you know, obviously ecstasy, molly, skittles. I hear about skittles um, being talked about, um, vitamin E, sweets, candy, thiz, Adam. I don't think I've ever been, heard it being called Adam. Uh, however, you know, the formulation at ecstasy typically comes as these colorful hexagonal um, shaped pressed tablets. That's the most common way that they're formulated. And they come with these cute, like imprinted little like emoji um, type signatures. And so it's kind of emerged in pop culture as being quite innocuous, which is, which is kind of unfortunate. Typically is taken uh, just swallowed or snorted and uh, takes about 20 to 30 minutes for it to take effect. I mean, I guess if you're snorting it, it's going to take a lot shorter time to set in as opposed to swallowed. And it lasts about three to six hours. So just enough time to party hard at a dance uh, party concert rave, etc. And it does cause lowered inhibition, a great sense of empathy and sharing like the love drug, you love everybody around you, you feel just so in touch with everybody. And you have an enhanced sensory perception as well. Again, think about the serotonin, think about all the neurotransmitters it's hitting, you have enhanced sensory perception, but then unfortunately, you have some really terrible intoxication effects relating to its dopaminergic cholinergic uh, effects, including tachycardia, cardia, hypertension, bruxism, tense muscles. People often get nausea and vomit. And I've heard that really frequently that people just, they think they're going to have this fantastic night and they end up just in the corner puking all night. They can have profound diaphoresis. And there's some debate as to whether the diaphoresis is an effect directly of the drug or it's an effect from just being so happy and excited and kind of revved up that you dance so hard that you sweat and sweat. But it probably has to do with both but predominantly the direct effect of the drug, just like other 
stimulants cause sweating. Um, the hyperthermia can be so severe that it can cause rhabdomyolysis and acute kidney failure, actually, and even death. So that's something to think about if you're an emergency medicine physician or provider or EMS person that you need to check temperature and cool patients really aggressively if they come in with this. Where there have been many accounts of people who have died from the hyperthermic effects of MDMA intoxication. And then this is the ultimate broad question, and that is it can cause hyponatremia. Again, is this because of excessive sweating, dehydration from dancing all night? It actually is probably a combination, but it is a direct effect of increased ADH, which is probably a result of the serotonergic effect. And um, this is seen more in women. So here again, we have this telescoped effect where women are more vulnerable than men. So you put this in our, our notes, Darlene, that um, at the beginning of this decade, MDMA has been implicated in about 27 deaths in the US and more than 50 in, the, in Europe. So that's terrible, you know, and it's most likely related to dehydration, stroke, hyperthermia, profound hyponatremia. So something to think about. And those people who do like rock concert medicine and those groups, they're very very aware of the effects of MDMA, certainly not a, an innocuous drug. Um, why people use binkies and pacifiers uh, raves um, is because this causes severe bruxism in almost everybody, again, because of how much serotonergen, serotonergic effect it has. So in terms of... Yeah, I think it's important is those deaths with, with the other club drugs that we see, most of the deaths are because they're combining it with other drugs. Mm. But that's the difference is this MDMA is by itself, you're seeing those deaths because of those things like exactly what you just said. It's the hyperthermia, the hyponatremia, that increased stroke risk. And so that's, that's just something to be aware of those people that are vulnerable, and they don't they don't know it. Absolutely. And you know, just it just goes to remind us that all of the cathinones and the cathinone derivatives, MDPV, MDMA, which is it's, it's in its own class, but bath salts, and then of course, pure stimulants like amphetamine, methamphetamine, cocaine, crack, they're very dangerous drugs. I mean, we I think we as a society have really focused on opioid risk and opioid deaths, and rightly so. They've caused a catastrophic amount of overdose events. And we forget how catastrophic alcohol is by itself how many thousands and thousands of people, like was it 93,000? No, that's overdose, but there's thousands of people that die every year as a result of alcohol, but really stimulants cause all kinds of havoc. So don't forget about MDMA in this. Long-term effects of MDMA, this main thing that we've kind of alluded to and talked about is depression because of the depletion, the deep depletion of serotonin. You literally squeeze all the serotonin directly out of the receptors, and then you can have long-lasting confusion, problems with attention, and memory, sleep, increased anxiety, impulsiveness, decreased uh, sexual drive, and more. And I have to say, I've, I've definitely heard all of these things clinically, people complaining of them. And it's it makes the use of MDMA self-limiting. In my experience, I hear people just say, well, you use it, and it's fun, but you can only use it so much. And it's really people who really have other significant use disorders that keep pushing through those side effects are the ones who keep using it really heavily and persistently. Would you say that you found that? to be true as well. Yeah, I I rarely see persistent users. It's usually some episodic, some episodic use. Or you see persistent use, but in the context of like meth, meth use or alcohol yeah. use or something. And oh, just an aside for urine tox screen, MDMA shows up as a false positive in meth, meth users because it's a, it can be, it, it shows up as a derivative or a metabolite on point of care tests. So a lot of times, um, like my MAs will come and say, well, this guy's Got, has been using MDMA. Look at his urine tox screen. And uh, my patient's like, oh, I, I don't use MDMA. I just use meth. So just be aware of that. It can often show up as a false positive. Okay. One other thing to note is that um, we talked about these club drugs are often used in combination with each other. MDMA in combination with alcohol actually um, causes a decrease in some of the alcohol effects, but alcohol can c increase the plasma concentration of MDMA. So that's not great, right? You get a uh, increased effect 
effect, which increases the risk of neurotoxicity. So just be aware of that. And you can educate your patients with that. So again, this is just like cocaine. You very rarely see cocaine used by itself. People who use cocaine nearly always use it with alcohol. I think there's like an 80% co-use rate. And probably for the same reason, you get this nice synergistic effect with cocaethylene. And then with um, MDMA, you get an increased effect of the MDMA. About 40% of people who use MDMA will experience a pretty significant withdrawal syndrome. So we already kind of talked about that. And just know that there's no FDA approved medications to treat people who present with MDMA use or MDMA use type um, use disorders. So we need to kind of look at whether behavioral therapies are effective and there's more research to follow. So there you go. That That is Molly. Thank you, Paula. That was fantastic. All right, down to our last two drugs. So we're going to just quickly talk about Rohypnol. This is one of the ones most familiar as one of our date rape drugs. And this comes in typically in pill form, usually is taken orally, although it can be ground and snorted. And mechanism of action is this is a benzodiazepine. And Paula, remember this one? Do you remember the benzodiazepine? <laughs> this is the, so we have all kinds of <laughs> points you can earn tonight from uh, from <laughs> from listening to this episode. So if you could say the benzodiazepine, <laughs> then you win the prize. I think it's flunitrazepam. Yes, yes flunitrazepam. So classic. The the issue with this, even though it is a benzodiazepine, this is one like unlike many of our others that you, because of that, you would think potentially we could pick up on a drug screen. But unfortunately, most of the components on the drug testing, because it's administered in such small amounts and it's distributed so rapidly, it may not be picked up. So just be aware of that. If you have something that really looks like a benzodiazepine and acts like a benzodiazepine and fits that intoxication type, think that this might be Rohypnol. This history behind this, it was originally manufactured by Hoffman LaRoche, and it is still available outside of the US, but and there are certain countries. And it'd be interesting, see, this is where we do have many listeners outside the US, and it'd be interesting to know what their rates of use are. That would be that would be some good feedback. So it's not legal. Rohypnol became prominent in the 1990s as an inexpensive recreational sedative, and that's where it got its label as the date rape drug. Dan and Percent use is pretty low. I mean, typically in monitoring the future studies, it showed maybe about 0.7% past year use among like high school seniors compared to our other club drugs. It's not a big one there. And again, your treatment is going to be your same treatment that you would use for benzodiazepine. So again, you're always looking at in airway and you're just your typical your typical um benzodiazepine reversal if you have a high like an actual overdose so flumanazil if you're actually looking at a an actual benzodiazepine overdose yep any other care any other supportive care oh one thing i almost forgot one thing that the manufacturer did add is they have added a blue dye to the pill that will be visible if this is a dissolved in a liquid to try to reduce the to, to try to reduce its use in in as a date rape drug that's good that's so good. I, that I hope interesting. it's yeah, very that's strong, obnoxious thing. blue dye so that we can just cut all that kind I, of stuff I really hope completely. so too. To, yeah, to try to reduce that risk. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I honestly can say I never, never I mean, I think I mostly learned about Rohypnol studying and then from the movies, The Hangover. <laughs> That is about it. And then unfortunately, from patients who think they may have been exposed to Rohypnol in some kind of an assault, which is very unfortunate. But otherwise, I haven't really heard people like don't they don't take it for fun, really, as far as in my clinical experience. Recreational. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Okay. And our final GHB. All right. Yeah. Even though, yeah, this one, not, you know, Polly, you have a lot of experience to kind of tell us about if, but I don't, I don't hear a lot. I have a lot of patients I've maybe suspected, but yeah. So yeah, tell us about that. Yeah. GHB. I think this is, again, this is another drug that is gaining, has been gaining interest, especially in a certain population. Um, our, our men who want to bodybuilding males or bodybuilding humans, not necessarily only males. And also certain people who are targeted for the anxiolytic um, effects of this drug, because it is, is it 
it's a CNS depressant and an intoxicant, and it can be quite euphoric. It's also kind of an empathogenic type drug. So the name of this one, again, bonus points for anyone who knows GHB, it's gamma hydroxybutyric acid. It's actually a naturally occurring neurotransmitter in the brain. It's structurally very close to GABA. So you can hear the name is very similar. So gamma hydroxybutyric acid, whereas GABA is gamma aminobutyric acid, and it's a metabolite of GABA actually. So it was first synthesized in France in 1960 as an anesthetic, but it gained popularity as a recreational drug and a nutritional supplement marketed to bodybuilders which I think is really fascinating. And um, that's how it's actually sold on the internet and as like something that can help you lose weight and cut your muscles. So, and then people end up, some people I think end up falling for that and not being aware that it is highly addictive or can cause very rapid tolerance and withdrawal. And that's my experience with it is treating people in an inpatient medically managed withdrawal setting um, for GHB dependence, GHB use disorder. So it comes as a clear liquid or a powder or tablets, but honestly, I've only ever heard all my patients have always said it comes in the liquid, like they buy it in vials and they take it as in a dropper. Have you had had anyone take it in any other form? I have not heard of it by any patient used in any other form. Yeah. So yeah, I've just heard that the dropper, the dropper is the only form I've heard of. So the liquid. Yeah, yeah. This and small doses. So just like just like a lot of other drugs, small doses can have very profound effects. But what I've heard from people people and what we know about it and it kind of makes sense because it acts much like GABA is it it very quickly causes tolerance and withdrawal syndrome and it puts people to sleep and it's a very strong anxiolytic so the withdrawal syndrome can be terrible i mean awful well we'll talk about that in a minute but so let's talk about the mechanism of action so it doesn't bind specifically to GABA A receptors but it binds non-competitively to the receptor in large doses they there are specific GHB receptor sites in the brain and all over the brain, like in the hippocampus and the cortex and some of the dopaminergic areas like the striatum and the substantia nigra. Excuse me, nigra. GHB inhibits dopamine release as well as its effects on GABA and it activates tyrosine hydroxylase. And so by both of those effects, it increases central dopamine levels. So this is probably where you get this reinforcing effect and why people want to take more and more. And it causes this euphoric, uh, very pleasurable state. It really is a relaxation type drug, anxiolytic, and a bit of a dissociative. It is one of the date rape drugs, right? That's what you said. That's why it, it kind of has its its category in the club drug category. Um, it, it's misused at doses of 2.5 to 30 grams, but it also has this other whole side of it where it was marketed for illicit use for weight control because it has these anabolic properties. So I, this is really interesting to me me because there's another drug that's sold. You hear about it being sold at some gyms a lot like Phenibut. And it just makes me, it just shocks me that people can access it. And when you're buying things on the internet for, you know, weight loss or pre-workout or workout formulas, you could be getting something like this, or your patients could be getting something like this. So I don't know if I understand the mechanism of action for weight loss and for, an, and it's anabolic effect. Do you, Darlene? So GH, be it's a growth hormone stimulator. The exact mechanism, I'm not quite sure, but that's how you get the bodybuilding and the weight loss effect from it. That's where it's, that's why it's become so popular. You know, it gets sold as like inkjet refills and solvents and that's kind of the base substance. And then that's how people, that's how people make it into GHB. And so that seems, seems to be the most common source, especially to get it into these high doses that they're using for these anabolic properties. That's what's really concerning. That is concerning. So the, Thanks, Darlene. The interesting thing about GHB, so just remember the things about GHB are it's very, it has GABA activity, also has a lot of dopaminergic activity. It's a dissociative drug. It's an amnestic drug. The desired effect is usually sedative, hypnotic, anxiolysis. And a lot of my patients that I've treated for this, they found it immensely helpful for them to fall asleep. I mean, of course, it's very, very powerful sleep agent. In fact, there's this term called G-napping, where people will just like fall out 
and be completely unconscious after they've taken GHB and they'll be amnestic surrounding the time that they use GHB. So it's kind of like a super powerful benzo, right? Acts on similar receptors. It's very, very short acting. And what ends up happening, I think it's got a half-life or activity effect of for like an hour or 1.5 hours. And what you see happening is people will start using it and it's really effective. It's like magic drug. And then they realize they have to take it every hour or every two hours in order to have its effect. And when they don't take it, they get absolutely terrible withdrawal symptoms. And it can happen in a very short amount of time, like within two or three weeks after starting using this regularly. And they will present to the hospital for help with their withdrawal symptoms because they'll have, or think about the worst benzodiazepine withdrawal you've seen, minus, I haven't seen seizures, but they'll have insomnia, cramps, tremor, perspiration, anxiety, headaches. And I've had some people even be somewhat delirious from that GHB withdrawal. It could be a nasty withdrawal. So you want to treat it, uh, treat the withdrawal syndrome with like you would for benzodiazepine or alcohol withdrawal. You can use benzodiazepines uh, like lorazepam or diazepam. You could also use barbiturates like phenobarbital if you're familiar with using those. And also use something like gabapentin and send them home on something like gabapentin as long as there's no abuse potential for gabapentin and try and give them, put them in a supportive environment as well. But we had really some really, really sick people with GHB withdrawal syndrome. In terms of GHB intoxication, just be aware, like again, if you're in an acute setting like a hospital, uh, that overdose on GHB can be difficult to treat because it can cause rapid unconsciousness and coma and severe risk of respiratory depression and bradycardia, cardiac arrest. So you got to just be aware of that, have it on your differential as one of the drugs, uh, recognizing that it is a date rape uh, drug, one of these kind of anesthetic, amnestic, uh, d- dissociative type drugs. And interestingly enough, could be used by these gym folks who are just thinking that they want to lose weight and build more muscle and inadvertently fall into the trap. Or it could be sought after by people who really like the effect of, of sedative hypnotics. That's GH. And I think that uh, ties up and rounds out our club drugs that we were going to talk about today. I mean, we took on a lot. We talked about LSD, yes. ecstasy, ketamine, rohypnol, and GHB. And there's a lot more to talk about. That's a that's a great intro. Great intro. And we'd I'd like to just say that that y'all who are listening are welcome to follow us on social media. We have an Instagram account, The Addiction Files. We're on Facebook and we're on Twitter at The Addiction Files. Our handle is The Addiction FI1. And you can just find us by looking for The Addiction Files. We'd love you to follow us and tweet us and send us messages, questions, requests for episodes. And we really try and tweet out interesting articles, things that we're finding in our practice and in our lives, treating people with addiction. And uh, we also advertise upcoming podcasts. So follow us on Twitter, help us uh, get the word out to any learners that you think might benefit from the podcast and happy uh, second season to us. We're well into it now and we really appreciate your listenership. And I need to give credit to... NIDA, where we got much of our information, and a paper by Kustav Chakraborty, Club Drugs Review of the Ray with a Note of Concern from the Indian Scenario from PubMed. So thanks. Thank you. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on this show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.